music. Hip hop. Change. Don't modulate the key, then not debate with me. With Ginger Valentine. Hello, friends, and welcome to the second episode of Key Change, an inexpert guide to music's insides, featuring me, Ginger Valentine. First off, thanks to all of you who gave me such lovely feedback on the first episode. It was something that was really close to my heart, and uh, as any of you who have made things that are close to you probably know, that's a really vulnerable position to be in, and it was so delightful to get nothing but lovely and supportive responses from folks. Key change is not quite 100% where I want it to be yet. It's still a thing that's in development. It is still growing, but I really, really appreciate all your support. And thank you especially to the people who subscribed and reviewed the show on Apple Podcasts because that is hugely important from a podcast success standpoint. I would love to make this a full-time job if I can. And that is a really important place to start because Apple have a huge sway over podcasts. Now, if you did listen to the last episode and got all the way through, you will know that at the end, I told you that this episode would be about how some artists use reverb to make their songs sound spiritual or holy in some way. Now, that was a lie. Not on purpose. At that point, I genuinely was planning to do that episode. I still am in the future. But I'm going to do something a little bit different today. The reason is, my argument, my defense, is that I got a bit hooked on the very, very good song, Your Best American Girl by Mitski. And I just couldn't stop thinking about that and how that uses dynamics. And as a, as a direct result, I have shuttled the reverb playlist down the line a little bit. So we will come to that in the future. But for now, I really want to look at Mitski's Your Best American Girl. Now, what I think that song does particularly well, uh, and if you've heard it, it's not a subtle thing, uh, is the very hard shift from the soft verse into the loud chorus. A big, dramatic, dynamic shift. And that's something that is very, very common. You'll hear that in all forms of music all over the place. But I really want to focus on a couple of examples that really highlight what I'm going to call in a very behind-the-times, too-late-for-the-meme way, big dynamic energy. If you're listening to this any time after like December 2018, Big Dynamic Energy is a joke on Big Dick Energy, which was kind of a, a short-lived meme around August 2018. So I'm not really up to speed at the best of times, but uh, go with me. So Big Dynamic Energy has a lot in common with the Wind Machine chorus that I talked about in the last episode, in the sense that you could argue that Big Dynamic Energy is a part of, or a component that is used in Wind Machine choruses. Those big shifts into the chorus do rely on similar dynamic shifts. But the difference is Big Dynamic Energy it's much broader. It's not a specific song structure like Wind Machine Chorus was. This is a much more open prospect. So there's a lot more room for variation, which is still really exciting. I'm mostly focusing on those really stark dynamic shifts like Your Best American Girl uses, where you've got that really abrupt shift in volume or intensity. I'll have a look at a couple of other examples of how dynamics can be used, but that abrupt shift, that really powerful shift is really what I'm thinking of when we talk about big dynamic energy. Much like some of the Wind Machine choruses, there is that contrast between verse and chorus in Your Best American Girl that starts with a very spare metronomic chugging in the verse. goes a little bit further in the case of Mitski where it is mic'd really closely so you hear all those little details. Like you can hear the click of the pick on the strings as she's strumming. 
Like I said, very metronomic, very even, but it is very close. And it's quite a slow song. That's significant as well for most of these big dynamic energy tunes is that they tend to be slower. Like Mitski is quite slow. I don't know the BPM off the top of my head, but some of the stuff we'll look at later is only slightly slower than your standard rock tune. But that slowness is is significant. But in the case of the Mitski song, it sets up this verse, which is very spare and intimate and draws you in with its quietness and its intimacy. And it has this sort of soft intensity to it that I really love. But then it shifts through a pre-chorus into this monolithic skyscraper of distortion and glorious feedback that just bursts with a shower of sparks. It's such a massive contrast. And personally, whenever I'm listening to it, I feel like that is the point where the next step that I take, my foot will not hit the ground and I'll just start walking up into the air. That's the kind of impact that Mitski has and that those big dynamic energy choruses can have. Especially in the case of Your Best American Girl, Mitski moves back and forth between those points with real control. Like it takes a lot of effort and and confidence to move back into that very quiet, intimate space immediately after. She gives you no respite or ease back out of the chorus, just drops straight back into that slow-picked verse. And then again, adds the same explosive chorus again, and it still works which is absolutely wild. And a lot of the credit there has to go to not just Mitski, obviously, who is the songwriter and visionary, but her collaborator, Patrick Hyland, added a great deal. And you'll hear, if you listen as it comes through the pre-chorus, you'll hear some rising tones. Sometimes there's a bit of guitar in there. There's a little bit of a feedback line that's rising. According to the episode of Song Exploder, which talks about this, they actually used a little bit of Mitski's voice processed to the extent that it sounds inhuman. It sounds like an instrument to match that melodic rise as it comes out of the verse. So that's another little technique they use to to break down that gap between the two without taking away any of that really arresting, explosive quality that the chorus has. And that's, again, an incredible feat of songwriting. That takes a lot of balancing. Go have a listen to that Song Exploder episode. It is from September the 7th, 2016, around the time that Mitski's last album, Purity 2, came out, and it is fascinating listening. Not just because Mitski is a very interesting person uh, and talks a little bit about these dynamics and about how she started out using these sort of loud, soft dynamics to draw attention to herself when she was performing. There's just a whole bunch of other stuff about the songcraft and the technology that they use to produce this song uh, that is really illuminating. And Song Exploder is a wonderful podcast, so... Uh, if you're listening to this and not Song Exploder, go please correct that. Song Exploder is a high watermark for what I would like key change to be at some stage down the line. Give me a little while. But it's important to know that Mitski is obviously not the first person to use this loud, soft dynamics, this movement back and forth between soft and loud. Big dynamic energy predates her by centuries, arguably. There are plenty of classical composers, especially from the early 20th century, but probably more. My, my expertise does not stretch to that area where you see a lot of examples of this, like Tchaikovsky, obviously in the 1812 Overture, sets off a fucking cannon. So in terms of dynamics, you can't get much more of a spike in dynamics than an explosion. There's one particular tune that you might not know by name, but you know by sound. O Fortuna is a part of Carmina Burana, which is a Karl Orff piece. And I'm sure you recognize it just then. It is the soundtrack to every slow-mo trailer and melodramatic moment in a film. It is very overused, but it is still an incredibly impactful piece of music. The power of that orchestral arrangement and the restraint and strength that Orff displays in that, where you start with this immense thunderous choir and big strings and big drums and it gets massive and evocative and powerful and then it drops right down to this very tense whisper and it's mostly soft strings soft intense tight strings and low voices in the choir 
but then it returns, strike up some massive percussion, and it bursts again, and the strings rush up, and the choir explodes into this massive, dramatic, oh, it is extreme, and it goes from 0 to 11 to 15. It is incredibly powerful, and it is a prime example of big dynamic energy from the mid-1930s. But obviously a band operating in a pop or rock sort of context is operating under different rules than Carl Orff would have been. But there's another name who is even more synonymous, I think, with the loud, soft, dynamic shifts in more modern context, and that's the Pixies. Really more than just about anyone else. They defined for a generation the power of loud chorus coming out of a soft verse. One of my personal favourite Pixie songs is Gigantic, which is a really great example of this. Kim Deal does a great job of the gear switching from verse to chorus, especially when, unlike some of the songs we'll look at later, she and the rest of the band aren't really working with a great deal of production trickery or anything like that. It's quite a natural, loose-sounding song, partly probably because of the person who recorded the album, Surfer Rosa, on which Gigantic appears. Steve Albini is, rather iconically in his own right, a grumpy old man who makes a lot of noisy rock in his own bands, but he particularly resists any kind of definition as a producer, even though he operates in a sphere similar to what a producer would do. He insists that he is a recorder, that he is there to record what the band does. So the feel of this album, and of Gigantic in particular, is very natural, is very live almost. So this is the sort of thing that you might hear the Pixies play on stage. So you might hear this big dynamic shift as the band kicks into the chorus, but that's all of the band joining in and picking up their energy and Kim Deal raising in her vocal range and and punching a bit harder with her voice as she shifts into the chorus. That was a very powerful formula for them and, and they worked it and Frank Black and Kim Deal and everyone else, they were absolute experts at deploying this particular loud soft dynamic. So much so that the tour documentary around their reformation a few years ago is called Loud Quiet Loud. And their influence extends to a great many bands, but one of the most obvious is Nirvana, who a couple of years later would take that loud soft dynamic into the mainstream in a very emphatic way with Smells Like Teen Spirit. Obviously Nirvana were operating in a similar space to the Pixies coming out of college rock contexts of the late 80s and early 90s, but by the time of Nevermind, a very different band aiming at a very different space. They'd put out Bleach a few years before, but Nevermind was their first major label album, and uh, I'm not sure about the production of Bleach, but I would hazard a guess that it wasn't a particularly high-end process or a big-name producer involved. Whereas Butch Vig, also of the band Garbage, produced Nevermind and made a very slick record, and that slick production, that control and precision that he brought to that band, is one of the major and, I think, underappreciated reasons why that album was so massive why what was essentially a college rock record at its core in terms of the songwriting and stuff broke out. Obviously there are a whole bunch of other things to give plaudits to, like Kurt Cobain's phenomenal songwriting, even though I am a little bit jaded on the album from just overexposure over the years. Kurt Cobain and Chris Novoselic and Dave Grohl are excellent musicians in their own right, but in the case of Smells Like Teen Spirit, there is a little bit of something extra that they had up their sleeves outside of songwriting that the Pixies didn't, and that is Butch Fix production. So if you have a listen to the guitars in the chorus, or especially when the drums come in, even at the beginning there, the very beginning, before you get any vocals, you get that tinny guitar strumming out the same chords, and then Dave Grohl's drum kick in, and then a massive guitar slide into the full fury of those guitars. And that guitar tone is something that would be difficult to generate with one guitar live. What's going on there is probably a lot of multi-tracking and compression and other things to make it sound even more massive. 
The same probably for Dave's drums and for Chris's bass. It is given a little bit of extra production help to make it sound more massive and to make that dynamic really blow up. And it worked. It is obviously one of the most iconic songs of all time. And obviously, much like the Pixies, incredibly influential. Smash cut to about 20 years later, and the former Hannah Montana, Miley Cyrus, puts out a song that makes the production on Smells Like Teen Spirit look like a garage demo. I came in like a wrecking ball. I never hit so hard Much like a lot of pop songs of that era and to this day, the songwriting is incredibly tight and there is a great deal of construction effort gone into the bones of the song, but so much of the song's impact relies on that dynamic, which in turn relies on the production of the song. There's a lot of great moves that the songwriters and and producers have pulled to make Wrecking Ball feel as impactful as its metaphor. Much like Your Best American Girl, there is quite a low, almost intimate verse. It's not quite as intimate. There is still an iciness to Wrecking Ball that I think keeps you at a bit more of a distance than Mitski, which draws you in more closely. But when it's preparing to get you into the chorus, there are some incredible tricks. I say tricks are not necessarily in a pejorative sense, but techniques that the producers have used to make it live up to that metaphor. One of the first things that they do to really earn that big dynamic energy is pulling the instrumentation out as Miley's ending the pre-chorus. So as you come out of the verse, which has pretty light instrumentation, not much of what you would call percussion. There's not really an established rhythm to it. There's a synth sort of pinging and ponging in the background, but it's quite light. It doesn't have a sort of rigid feel to it. It doesn't give the song a clear shape, so it's quite loose in the verses. And as the chorus changes, there's another layer added to that synth that follows the vocal line, much like Mitski's does, where Miley is singing. Don't you ever say, I just walked away, I will always want you. But after that, as Miley's voice on the word you dissipates, so too does the instrumentation, leaving a lot of open air, which is a very, very bold production technique. But fucking hell does it pay off here. And in that space, we get the first few lines of the chorus before anything else comes in. The first thing that punctures that silence is I came in like an on-wrecking ball. You get the first real clear, dynamic, powerful drums. And it is a distinct drum hit. So the drums don't come in and start smashing their way through. The drums actually have a lot of air around them as well. It's quite a minimal drum pattern, but the drums are massive and sound monumental. So that hit on Wrecking Ball, again, very much digs into that metaphor or that image of a Wrecking Ball striking a building. It has that world-shaking impact quality to it because of that space that they've left beforehand and the sharp, really abrupt onset of that drum. That sort of drum technique, the production required to make that sort of sound is something that really is more associated with someone like Phil Collins uh, and the producer who made In the Air Tonight. We call that a gated drum sound. There's a couple of other things with like a noise limiter and other things that I don't fully understand because I'm not that technically versed. But that signal is processed in such a way that it sounds monumental and you've got that really sharp beginning and ending to it. There's not the sound of a drum in a room. The drum sound is and is not very quickly. And that makes our brains interpret that as being even more striking, like it blows in and out. So again, that plays into that sense of space that the song really thrives off. One of the key things, in addition to this pause, that's different about Wrecking Ball, as opposed to some of these other songs with big dynamic energy, is the fact that it doesn't really introduce... It doesn't introduce new instruments in the same way as other songs in this sample set that I've looked at. So Mitski adds guitars that are really essentially a different instrument in the chorus of Your Best American Girl compared to the strumming that's going on in the verse. Smells Like Teen Spirit, as I said, has that really sharp dichotomy between the sort of brittle, more tinny guitars at the beginning and the actual chorus guitar. And Dave's drums come in. Now, I've already said the drums do come in on the chorus of Wrecking Ball, but they don't come in and create a wall of noise in the same way that the Nirvana guitar does or that the guitars do in Gigantic or that the choir doesn't come in a Birana. 
it is much more spaced out and the space is filled in a much more abstract way, or much less attention-grabbing way, I suppose, by a synth tone that is large and dense and overpowering, but at the same time, it's quite buried. It's pushed right back in the mix, so it's not loud. Miley's voice is still front and center, and most of the air is around that voice. Filling the edges of that space is that synth tone, which is constant. There's, it is a, a synth drone, really, with a sort of jagged quality to it. So it's a burr going on in the background, but it is heavily compressed. And compression is a really key detail here that applies to Mitski and applies to most of the other songs that have come after, you know, about 1980-whatever, after Phil Collins' era. Obviously, compression is an older thing, but that's really the sort of starting point is where the technology started to advance and the techniques started to advance in using that technology where you could create these even more massive sounds. So this synth sound by itself would sound loud, but in order to hear it more clearly, you would have to turn it up in the mix or make it more loud in relation to other instruments. Compression squishes the sound so that the distance between the loudest sound and the quietest sound is much smaller. That makes it overall seem much more loud, even though as you hear in Wrecking Ball, if you have a listen, it's not a loud tone. It fills your brain in it. The sort of thing that you might not notice until you stop to listen to it, but it is there and it is having this sensory filling impact, even though it's not calling your attention. That's a hugely difficult production line to walk. But I think you'll agree, if you've ever tried to sing along to Wrecking Ball, that it is incredibly powerful because when you sing along without the value of that synth or with you know your voice loose in the air, especially without those compressed drums as well, uh, the chorus all of a sudden feels like it's lacking something. And by having that there, it fills up your senses in a way that you might not consciously register, but it adds to the overall density of the song, the thickness, which is, again, down to that compression. You'll hear similar compression deployed in a very different way on the track Mogwai vs. Satan by Mogwai. Brief interruption. This is really embarrassing, uh, but this is what happens when you don't read your notes properly. The song is actually called Mogwai Fears Satan, uh, and I've referred to it a number of times by the mistaken title, so... Uh, I felt like I had to get out in front of this because it is deeply embarrassing to me even as I edit this. Now, for reference, just before I go any further, I'm looking at the version off their live album Special Moves because it's really fucking cool. It is an incredibly well-recorded live album and I think it actually sounds a bit better than the version on Young Team and it's a bit more... I think it's more interesting to look at a live tune. Like, there is there is production that goes into this. Do not delude yourself into thinking that there is not a huge amount of both pre- and post-filtering of the sound to make it sound better. But in terms of a live album, there are limitations to what you can achieve. You can't do overdubs in the same way unless you do them in, after the fact. Things like that. So it's much more difficult. So what they've achieved on Mogwai vs. Satan. And there's another one. On that Special Moves album is quite phenomenal when you hear the actual crescendo of it. Now, just a heads up, I will play a little bit for you in a moment. But when I do, I'm going to play the quiet bit first so that you get a sense and then it goes loud. For God's sake, do not turn your volume up on your listening device to try and hear the quiet stuff better because you will blow out your eardrums. Because second, probably only to the Pixies, Mogwai, especially early Mogwai, were known for this soft, loud, dynamic shifts. Most of Young Team relies pretty heavily on that, and I think Mogwai versus Satan. And fuck! It's the best example of that. In the case of the Special Moves version, it's an 11 minute long piece of very carefully crafted dynamics. I want to be clear that I'm not giving Mogwai any shit for suggesting that they have done any kind of production to this tune. Much like Kamina Burana, it's very expertly constructed to move gracefully between these dynamics, these soft and loud moments, in a way that plays to an overall growth as the song expands in scale and in intensity over time, until you get to this final, long, quiet pause where the song slowly starts to lose momentum and it drops and it almost sounds like it's flagging. 
only to have Mogwai come sweeping in with abrupt fury into this enormous sinus-clearing crescendo of guitars and drums and bass. It's an incredible experience, and have a bit of a listen to it, and we'll talk more in a sec. there is that in in terms of the production stuff as i say there is a certain amount of post-production that can be done to a live record in terms of cleaning up things and balancing the various instruments better to make the sound more clear or more impactful but a lot of what's gone on would have been done what i've called pre-production but it's probably more accurate like at the time of like parallel simultaneous production where the very experienced and capable band members are playing their guitars and such through compression pedals and reverb pedals and a whole array of other guitar effects and bass effects and stuff that would be changing the sound in real time. So in some ways, because of that dynamic shift and all the planning that has gone in, that song sits somewhere between Karl Orff's Carmina Burana O Fortuna and Mitski in terms of the balancing between the dynamics of the movement of the song and the production as a tool to make it more powerful. You know, Mogwai is right in the middle of that Venn diagram. The last song I want to look at before I let you go is a little bit outside of the spectrum of what we've been talking about before. I picked the phrase big dynamic energy because I wanted to leave a little bit of room open for the yeah yeah yeah's maps. Now I don't feel like I need to introduce maps, it's a phenomenally powerful and I think broadly recognised song, but there's a lot of stuff going on in there that I didn't recognise for the first hundred odd listens, and it speaks to the yeah yeah yeah's talent as songwriters and song crafters. And this is something that comes down to craft as much as production. There is obviously production in anything that we talk about, especially contemporary stuff. But most of what's interesting about this is not the fact that it does the big abrupt volume shifts or intensity shifts. There's a little bit of that in the throw to the guitar solo, where you have a relatively large peak, sort of online with what the, the Pixies did in terms of that, that spike in intensity. But what's more interesting is the interplay, that sort of dynamic shift between the instruments as you move between verse and chorus. So they don't go for a really soft verse, massive chorus to make the chorus more impactful. What they do is far more subtle and far harder, and I think it makes it a stronger song for it. The song starts out with a very high, glassy guitar line played by Nick Sinner, probably with the aid of a looping pedal or a tremolo pedal or something like that. I don't know that side of technology. That is the introduction to the song that sets the tone for the song, which is then joined after a few bars by the thundering low drums. And that is the mold through the verse as Karen sings her verse. The guitar is twinkling away this very high, fast guitar part, and the drums are playing very low. There's, there's nothing but the heaviest toms throughout the verse until you get to the point where Karen o, at the beginning of the chorus says, and those thundering toms abruptly switch to very delicate high taps on the cymbals. Not even full cymbal bashes, but if you can imagine if you've ever seen a drummer playing, where you hit the cymbal very high on the bell, it creates this very delicate, again, kind of like the guitars, a glass-like sort of quality to it. Very fragile, it's very high, and it's quite difficult to do with precision, but uh, obviously Brian Chase is a very, very capable drummer. And so in the chorus, as Karen O is intoning probably one of the most iconic lines of the last 30-odd years, 
Brian has all but foregone the drums themselves. There's only a relatively small and sort of loose rhythmic playing of one of the lighter toms or something like that to focus purely on the bell of the cymbals and and add this unusual rhythm that he's playing. He's not playing a strict rhythm there. All of a sudden, the drums have taken over from the guitar. The drums are in the chorus, the lead instrument, backing Carano. The guitar is still there and there's a little bit of a synth line adding a little bit of texture, sort of similar to what the chorus of Wrecking Ball does. Less obviously, but still there. But Brian has taken over and is backing Carano in this very unusual way for a drummer. But again, Brian Chase is very, very talented and knows how to use his kit in interesting and innovative ways to bolster the song to make it more powerful. And then at the end of the chorus, we go back to the verse and we go back to that same twinkly guitar bit and Brian Chase moves back down to the low part of the drum. And we get those shifts back and forth as we move between verse and chorus. So that dynamic is much more subtle than anything you get in Your Best American Girl or Wrecking Ball or anything like that. But it's still incredibly powerful. That's one of the reasons why your chest just tightens up a little bit as you get to that chorus and that lift where the drums go from low to high. You're picked up by that drum change and you can feel your shoulders lift up and that's matched absolutely perfectly by Carano's really restrained yearning vocal presence in that chorus. Especially because she's holding in reserve her power. She only really gives you a glimpse of that in the last chorus as things are getting the most dramatic. She hints at the full explosion that she could drop, but she chooses not to and goddamn that's a powerful choice. And things like that, this powerful dynamic shifting between drums and guitar, combining with Karen's voice in incredible synchronicity between the three musicians, is one of the reasons why I think Maps feels so fresh 15 years after it came out. I was a bit shocked. I thought it was much more new, but it still sounds unbelievable. And it is an incredible piece of work. Now, there are a whole bunch of other songs that have big dynamic energy. And I've got a couple of others on the playlist, which you can check out. There are Spotify and Apple Music playlists in the show notes or on the website, gingerbfg.com slash keychange. So there's another couple of examples, like LCD Sound Systems Dance Yourself Clean, which uses a delayed gratification sort of approach to this big dynamic energy by holding in that soft, low pattern. Very simple, repetitive drums and loose sort of percussion. It's uh, it's not a full-on drum kit, but just sort of sticks in that mode for a very long while and introduces elements to almost to tease you, like something else is going to happen, like a little whistling synth sort of thing that then takes away and, and nothing happens until all of a sudden the big, heavy synth starts hammering and the song bursts into full color. There's a very good reason they use that song at the beginning of concerts, and it is super effective, I can tell you from first-hand experience. Also on there, I uh, put Tchaikovsky's 1812 Overture because cannons are going off, and also one of my personal favourite songwriters, Lucy Dacus, put out an album called Historian earlier this year. I love her, I love it, and one of the tracks on there is called Night Shift, which I think is a great example of her growing power as a songwriter. Like, don't get me wrong, her first album is still one of my all-time favourites, but she's demonstrating some really interesting growth on Historians, where the song Night Shift is the album opener where she has this sort of slow tension, uh, this really soft, slow-burning tension to her music that I, I love. I, don't, I, I never feel like I have an immediate reference point for Lucy, but Night Shift is a great example of her sound and the sort of shadowy tones to the sort of Americana music that she makes, like rock and Americana. But Night Shift is a great example of her using that sort of same tone that she established on the first album, holding in that restraint through most of the song until you get to the reprise of the chorus right at the end where the full band comes in and all of a sudden it's really loud and you've got again that big dynamic shift and i think she utilizes it really well and it's incredible it's a wonderful song and she's wonderful and i adore her so go check out those songs as well if you are there you can add your own examples whatever songs you think best exemplify big dynamic energy you can also jump on our facebook group key change and inexpert guide to music's insides on facebook uh, there will be a link in the show notes for that as well And you can jump in there and you can suggest other songs that might fit that playlist. Or you can suggest other songs for future episodes. Or you can suggest other ideas for future episodes that you might like to hear me do. 
jump on the Facebook, that's the place to do it. Also, I want that to be a really great place for folks to come and have chats about whatever music you're listening to, good-natured debates, all-encompassing love for music. I just want that to exist. So if you'd like to be a part of that, key change on Facebook, come join us. Before I go, I have to do a little bit of housekeeping, obviously. I mentioned at the start that some of you have been generous and lovely enough to review the show on Apple Podcasts, and I really appreciate that. It would mean a lot to me if more of you would do so. I haven't quite got enough reviews yet to actually have the star rating on the podcast, and I think that's a huge barrier for people who haven't heard the show. If they're coming in, if they don't know me, if it's got no reviews, I feel like people are a little bit more reticent. So if you could head along to Apple Podcasts and bolster those numbers a little bit and give me some nice feedback, I would be very, very grateful. And also my delicate, delicate ego would be appeased. So all these things and more to bear in mind. I will be back in December with another episode of Key Change. Given the change in subject that I made since the last episode, I'm not going to commit to anything yet, but rest assured we will have something in December for you. Uh, So make sure you're subscribed to keep up to date on that and get that new episode when it comes down. And finally, on the note of Lucy Dacus, I'm going to finish the episode with a recommendation. Go listen to the Boy Genius EP. Boy Genius is spelled all lowercase, all one word. And that is a super group of sorts with my beloved Lucy Dacus, my equally beloved Julian Baker, and my, I'm just starting to appreciate her music, I'd never really heard her before, Phoebe Bridges. So three incredibly talented singer-songwriters working together to combine their talents in a way that is revealing new sides to all three of them and stretching all three of them in really interesting directions. They're really distinct. As I said, Lucy has this sort of brooding Americana sort of quality. Julian Baker is very spare. She will appear on the reverb episode if and when I get to that. She uses a lot of repetition and reverb to make herself seem very small in her music and very reflective, and it's heart-wrenching. I cannot listen to her music all that often because it devastates me, and Rejoice will reduce me to tears each and every time. Phoebe Bridges is, in complete contrast to both of those people, very hushed and intimate somewhere between Americana and folk. She has a very hushed, breathy, soft, whispery way of singing, kind of like Iron and Wine-ish sort of texture, but a a little bit looser, less rhythmic than Iron and Wine, a little bit more of an impressionistic quality in her music. I'm really loving her last album. I'm only starting to understand that, but the Boy Genius EP is six tracks long, and each and every track is unbelievable. They are talents that are firing on all cylinders, super gay, and I fucking love it. I have not listened to anything else with any kind of focus for at least a week since it came out, and I want you to go listen to it. That is my recommendation. I'm going to leave you with that. I will talk to you again in about a month. 